Father in heaven, we come to you on the merits of Jesus, our Savior. We pray by the Spirit. So you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us. We thank you for the word. We pray for our children and students tonight that are learning the Bible, that it would be etched into their hearts. Pray especially for our students that deal with so much during the week. The world is stacked against them, and yet you have given them a spirit, not of fear. Father, I pray that the word would grow in their hearts. Father, I pray that tonight would be a good night of being strengthened. Help us now as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. October of 2023, there has never been a time in American history where the book of Song of Solomon has not been more necessary. For instance, a little over a week ago at a very popular church in Atlanta, Georgia, led by a very popular pastor named Andy Stanley. Anybody ever heard of Andy Stanley? Yeah. With North Point Church, they had a conference called Unconditional. And the conference, Unconditional, was basically structured to help parents who have children who have either come out as homosexual or transgender to help them be more accepting of that. Included in the the conference uh, at North Point. Now this church, this is is Charles Stanley's son, First Baptist Atlanta, Uh, then North Point. This is a church that lots of guys over the course of time have looked to. Andy Stanley is a great communicator, written a whole lot about leadership. Many of us have read his books. This is a church that's been looked to for a long time by way of leadership, a lot of practical matters. Now having two men that are so-called married speaking at the conference. So that's just an example. I won't go into great detail. You can Read about it. You can just Google it, Unconditional Conference, if you want to read about it. I think World Magazine wrote, wrote a little bit. Uh, Moeller has, uh, Al Moeller has said a whole lot, written a whole lot about it. You can read about it on the briefing. That's one thing out there. <clears throat> or uh, there's a book that was put out not too long ago. Uh, entitled was, uh, the title of it is Jesus and John Wayne. Anybody read that book? Jesus and John Wayne. Written by a woman who at one point um, had claimed to be very conservative Christian, Christian Dumez, um, Christian Dumez. She basically castigates uh, what she calls muscular Christianity from Teddy Roosevelt uh, to Billy Graham to even the Promise Keepers movement. And says that, that what is considered masculine in the world right now is basically a construct of the culture. Of the culture. We live in a world that has gotten really confused, if not confused, at least reticent to speak clearly and directly and joyfully about gender and sexuality. And we live in a world that, and a country that has started to separate the two, gender and sexuality. That you can be born a man, but actually be a woman or vice versa. A lot of discussion about that out there today. There's a lot of discussion on who is to go into a public restroom that is labeled male or female. Schools. 
there's a lot of discussion on on sports teams. I, I think that part of the movement that is happening in the United States is going to, if it if it if it doesn't get checked, will be the destruction of women's sports. That's going to happen. So into that mix that we live in right now comes a poem, Song of Solomon. It's just eight chapters. It's not very long. When you read it, uh, it's hard to find a real storyline in it. This little book, eight chapters, is unlike any other book in the entire Bible. You won't find it quoted in the Old Testament ever. You won't, certainly won't find it quoted in the New Testament. It's, it's put here and never mentioned again. And yet, as long as there's been a Bible, as long as there has been a Bible, Old Testament or New, the Song of Solomon has been there. This little book is... Uh, is fascinating. I've read it several times in preparation for this lesson. And every time I read it, it's, it's fascinating to look at. So let's, uh, let's back up, take a run and start at it. We'll just treat it like we do every, every other book. Uh, just sort of go through the book and talk about some of the aspects. Let's start with the title. <clears throat> the title of the book. Uh, the title of the book historically has had three titles. Uh, one title is called Canticles, C-A-N-T-I-C-L-E-S, Canticles, that's just Latin for songs. That's what it was called in the Vulgate because it's songs. Another more common title is what you have probably in your Bible is the Song of Solomon. It comes up in chapter 1. It just says it right there, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So it's been called the Song of Solomon. I prefer the title Song of Songs. That's the third title. You find it right there in chapter 1, verse 1, Song of Songs. When you see that, hear the, uh, hear the superlative, superlative Song of Songs. Like if you talk about Jesus, he's Lord of Lords or King of Kings or in the Old Testament, Holy of Holies. The title here is This is the Most excellent song. It is the song of songs. In fact, it's interesting if you take your Bible and uh, for those of you that went through Bible drill, you can do it quickly. First Kings chapter four, there's a description of Solomon and his writing. Let me just read it to you. First Kings chapter four, verse 32. He spoke 3,000. So this is Solomon. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. So he wrote 1,005 songs. It's interesting that it's such a specific number. 1,005, there are that many songs. And what we have here in this eight-chapter little book is the very best one. And he's not a one-hit wonder. He had 1,005, but there's one song better than any of them. And it's been given to us right here in the song of songs. So we got that. That's the title. Uh, let's talk about the author and the date. There's been a lot of discussion as to who wrote the song of songs. 
Uh, it's always been understood from, Ju from the times of Judaism into early Christianity all the way up till about the turn of the 20th century. It was understood that Solomon wrote it with the modern scholarship that came out of Germany that, that sort of torpedoed conservative Christian scholarship, became liberal Christian scholarship. Uh, there are questions, critical questions about who wrote it. So it could be any number of people that would say and that they use Solomon to give it credibility. I think you probably just, the safest way to discuss who wrote it is what it says. Otherwise, it's just speculation. So the, the self-attestation is it's Solomon wrote it. And if he wrote it, <clears throat> then it's best to see him writing it at the early part of his reign. When he is a young man. So we've said it several times before. If Solomon wrote, uh, if he wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, then the best way to understand it is he wrote the Song of Solomon uh, when he was a young man. He wrote Proverbs when he was middle-aged. He figured out some things. He wrote Ecclesiastes as an old man. And he looked back and said, don't do that. So Proverbs is middle-aged, Song of Solomon early, and Ecclesiastes late. It had to be early in his ministry or in his, in his reign as king because this is a love poem between two people. And what do we know about Solomon and the way he what? So 700 wives. Think about that with me now. If that weren't enough, 300 concubines, a thousand women. So that's later on in his life. He sort of accumulated all these women and his wives. The way this is written, if Solomon wrote it, the way it is written, it is written between two different, two people. It's very exclusive. When you read it, it feels very exclusive. It's written like a newlywed. Uh, and the way he talks, you'll see it if you haven't read it. Uh, it's written between a man, one man, and one woman. Well, it's sad, too, because when you read this, there's an intense love that is there uh, between the woman and the man, between Solomon and this woman, uh, and their marriage. It has a real sense of romance. You read it. I mean, they love each other intensely. But we, you know, where we're positioned, we can look back at history. We know what happened to him. We know what happened to his story and how he gave himself over to such lust. And it's tough when you read this on the front end and you know what actually happens on the back end. So let's talk about the structure of the book. <clears throat> what is the structure? If you're just looking at it, there's several ways to sort of uh, structure it out. But I think there's basically three sections. The best way to look at it is three sections. So from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 5, you might put that as courtship. Chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 5, all of that is courtship. There's, there's pursuit there. And then from chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 1, it feels sort of like the honeymoon. Like it finally convinces her and they get together. Chapter 3, verse 6 to 5, verse 1, that could be, or you might say the wedding. That's the wedding. They come together. 
And then from chapter 5, verse 2 to chapter 8, verse 14, I would just title that uh, marriage or matrimony. They're just living as a married couple. So chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 5 is pursuit, courtship. Chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 1, that's the honeymoon or the wedding. Uh, and, then, and then matrimony, chapter 5 to the, to the end. That's sort of the basic. Now, you could structure it differently because there are uh, sections where there's a dream. There are sections where you're not sure who's talking. But that's just a basic structure of the eight-chapter book. Let's talk about the genre. The genre and how do we, <clears throat> how do we interpret? Like, what do you do with it? Because when you read it, I mean, it is like pretty explicit for the time, especially. And it's, a, it's a, between a man and a woman. How do you read it? Well, it's always been a struggle from the very beginning. It, like it's, it's, you wonder, uh, how did it get in the Bible? What's it doing there? Uh, because rabbis, Jewish rabbis, wouldn't, you, if you were, you had to be over 30 years old to read it. So anybody here under 30? Don't be looking at it while I'm talking. You had, had to be over 30 uh, to read it. So the, the way it was understood was this can't be just true to life. So since it can't be that, it's always been read allegorically, as allegory, as, as, as imagery. The, the problem with allegory is that you can come up with whatever you want. Allegory is very subjective. You can just say, okay, well, this means that. Uh, so that's how it was read. That's how it was read in Judaism. Uh, it was read between that, between God and Israel. Israel was the woman and the man represents God. And it was a picture of God's love for his people. That's how it was read in Jewish life completely. And then Christians picked that up and thought, well, you know what? That sounds pretty good. So when Christ came, the, the crucifixion and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, you have the first church. And then finally, after that, in 200 years, you have the canon, the, the New Testament comes together, the whole Bible. Then Christian preachers are going through the Bible and the Song of Solomon is there and they read it and think, well, okay, well, this, this must be allegorical. So the way it has always been understood, not almost always understood, is that the the man in this story is God and the woman is the church. And this is an allegory of how God loves the church. The problem is when you read it, if that's that sounds weird. <laughs> you ever read it? I mean, that, that doesn't that doesn't sound right. So how an allegorical approach I don't, doesn't doesn't make any sense to me, but. That's the way all the Christians, I mean, from Jerome to Augustine, St. Augustine, whom we man, just respect so much, or Origen, or uh, the Venerable Bede, if you've ever read that, the history of the Anglo-Saxon church, and Bede who wrote that, or the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, he saw it like that. Luther, the, the great reformer, Martin, Martin Luther, that's the way he read it. John Calvin, that's the way John, not John Calvin said it wasn't, being allegorical, but he was. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now look, I got a dog named Spurgeon. I love Spurgeon. He preached 
58 sermons out of the Song of Solomon. Not one time did he read it literally. All, all allegorical. 100% allegorical. So that's been the historical way to understand the Song of Solomon, is to see it as allegory. There's been a pretty good shift, though. Another way to look at it is, uh, is like it's a drama. Like you've been handed a, an Old Testament play and reading it as if it is a drama. So when you read Solomon and the, Shul and the Shulamite girl, um, so I'll just read a little bit of it here. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, and it starts out, the very first person to speak in this is a woman. And this is what she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And she'll start talking about herself. She's dark and lovely. You get to verse 8. And he will say, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, he's telling her where to go. So it plays out like a drama between Solomon and the Shulamite woman. Could be that. I read somebody thought it was a funeral dirge. A funeral dirge. Have you read it? A funeral? Somebody else, another line of thinking was that it's a, uh, that it's, that it's a wedding ceremony. That's more in line. I can see that. It would make more sense because it's between a man and a woman. So it could be a wedding ceremony. I think the best way to understand this, it is, it is, it is history written poetically. It's historical poetry. It is poetry when you read it. It is to, it's to be opened up and read as inspired poetry. So, so those of us, you're here. We have a doctrine of the Word of God, of the Bible. We believe that the, the Bible is, is inspired by God, but that the Holy Spirit has given, that it, is, that it is accurate, that it is God speaking. So when you get to a book like this, it, um, you read it as, in, as inspired poetry. This is God's Word. How has it been used? Well, we talked about allegory. So it's been mostly used throughout history. Jewish history and Christian history to depict how God loves his people, uh, even the church, how God loves the church. Um, in recent years, there's been this weird swing. Like, I think it's a healthy to the most part, but, but you know, anytime you compensate, when you grab the wheel, if you're headed toward one ditch, you, if you grab it too hard, you end up in the other ditch. So that, some of that has happened, like, for instance, with... Uh, uh, Tommy Nelson. You, are you familiar with Tommy Nelson from Denton Bible Church? We had him here years ago. He was a, sort of the first one to jump into the Song of Solomon. And some of what he did, it felt almost R-rated. Uh, Mark Driscoll did the same sort of thing. Uh, of course, his ministry has gone off the rails. Uh, Matt Chandler did a pretty good balance. It was, uh, it was like literal, but also filled with gospel so there's been some of that. When I lived in Mobile, Alabama, at Dolphin Way Baptist Church where I pastored, 
on the, in our church was on the interstate. There was another big non-denominational church on the interstate that was real sort of attractionally driven. They did all kind of stuff, have a circus, get people to come. And they announced they were going to do a series on the Song of Solomon. And they put a bed on top of the roof. What kind of gimmicky, dumb thing? It's just dumb. So you have these weird swings. Uh, I think it's best to take this book and see it in its redemptive place. So, so if it's the Bible, if, if it's God's Word, then we trust that it's God has spoken to us. The Bible's purpose is to point us to Christ, to, to show us Christ. We see Christ. How do you find Christ in the Song of Solomon without turning it into allegory, without making stuff up? I think you find out where it fits in redemptive history or biblical history. So, for instance, there are four passages. We're going to read, by the way, we're going to read some of this. Uh, we're going to read some of it. I'm going to read it to you. But I want you to see how it fits. So, if you have a Bible, you can flip back to Genesis chapter 2. This is important for creation, for how we understand men and women especially in our day and time. So if you're reading Genesis chapter 1, you get to God's creating man and woman. It's a general statement in 1 verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. But in Genesis chapter 2, it gets very specific. So, so specific, this is what Jesus uses when he talks about marriage and, and men and women, how they stay together. He uses Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, Let me just, and following. Let me just read it to you. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its flesh, its place with that flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. He brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last, this bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, based on this, order of creation, God bringing, creating a man and a woman out of the man. Therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. They were not ashamed. They were living in perfect harmony with one another. This is God's design between a man and a woman. He's done this marriage ceremony, if you will. He's put them in this beautiful, perfect garden. There is no sin. So that's page two of the Bible. You have marriage show up. And it, marriage between a man and a woman, show up. It runs throughout the scripture. Comes off the rails in certain spots, but, but the Song of Solomon here in front of us, when you read that, from chapter 1 to chapter 8, it is a picture of the love of a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. So Genesis 2, Solomon, 
one, uh, I mean, the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, one through eight. And, and then a more, a more explicit picture. I would draw a straight line from there to Ephesians chapter five. That's where you need to go, Ephesians five. Ephesians chapter five. You guys know this passage. <clears throat> so now marriage takes on a different picture. So it's a creation ordinance in Genesis. It is filled with romance and song of songs. It becomes a gospel issue in Ephesians chapter 5. Let me start in verse 22. <clears throat> Ephesians 5 verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So part of your Christian living, that's how you live. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. So you see now how right off the bat, the marriage relationship that's based in Genesis, that's romanticized in the Song of Songs, it's now picturing Christ in the church. It's a picture of the gospel. A whole lot rides on your marriage. It's a picture of the gospel. Then husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So you think that through. How did Christ love the church? He lived perfectly, died, on, died in place of the church. So he gave himself up, the text says. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church. And he goes on to this flourish. What Paul writes here is, Marriage and Genesis, created by God. It is filled with romance in the Song of Songs. It is then picture, a picture of the gospel. So Christian marriage is not just procreation, not just children, not just a family. It is a picture. And this is something I didn't learn early on. I, but going through marriage counseling, when I came through, you read books like His Needs or Her Needs and Love is a Decision. And, uh, they had a couple other Christian books that, Talk about sex. So yeah, those are the, what you had to read. And you, you were never told your marriage is the gospel. It's a picture. You see, Ephesians 5 tells us that. So it's interesting. Marriage in Genesis, it's, it's, it's made artistic in the Song of Songs. It's given gospel meaning in Ephesians 5. And Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. And I'll be done. Revelation 19, we're getting near the end. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He's avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So Paul's here. He's describing eternal damnation and, and those that are saved. God gets glory through judgment of sin. Even that. So there's a hallelujah that's going on there. And uh, down in verse 6. <clears throat> then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You can just keep reading that if you'd like. But the, the picture I'm trying to paint is this. There's always been marriage as a picture. God brought it to us. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. There's a picture of God's goodness, male and femaleness. The Song of Solomon becomes explicit. We see what, what goes on there. The goodness of romance and how God has brought a man and a woman together. Ephesians 5, Paul says, but there's more to it. It's the gospel. And in Revelation 19, when Christ comes again, the consummation of the end of the world is marriage. Is this picture of what God intends the good between a man and a woman. I think the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs fits into that picture of how God has drawn it out for us. That would be a good use. That's how I would use it in, in redemptive history. Okay, enough talk there. Let's read some of it. Let's go to the Song of Solomon. Or the Song of Songs. <clears throat> there are a couple of key texts. I think the first 11 verses are key text. They lay out uh, the, the discussion between the Shunammite woman and Solomon. It's verses 1 through 11. I think there are other uh, key texts. Chapter 2, verse 7 is a key text here. This is what, this is the woman speaking. By the way, this book has more of a female voice than it does a male voice, which is unusual for the Bible. Verse 7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the, or the, or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. If you read chapters 1 and 2, there's this buildup and pursuit, and then you get this halt. Make sure now you don't go too far, is what, is what the woman says. You find that again. In fact, you find it three times. In chapter 3, verse 5, and then again in chapter 8, verse 4. In chapter 2, verse 10, I think is a, is a key text. My beloved speaks and he says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. When you hear that phrase, arise, my love, what do you think of? That song, remember that song? And that song, we, I mean, we sang it here a hundred times uh, at Hickory Grove. And it was sung with the, um, the, uh, an eye on Christ. But that's not what this means. But that's how it was. Used. I think it's a key text, though. I think what you find there is some of the, the flavor, as a Christian flavor. Or chapter 2, verse, verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossoms. There's a, a, that's like a proverb, isn't it? Put there in Song of Songs that says it's the little foxes, right? It's the little things. Keep a watch on the little things. Might be a way to understand that. Or chapter 8, verses 6 through 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart 
as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it out. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would utterly be despised. The, the first part is what we are, are familiar with. Set me as a seal upon your heart. We would put that in the voice of God a, a lot of times. But that's not. That's not what that text is saying. But there are some entertaining texts. I don't know how else to, I don't know how else to say it other than they're just entertaining to me. Uh, I've read these to Connie before, and she was very entertained by them. <laughs> so let me take the male voice. I'm here, let's go to chapter 4, verse 1. Business picks up. Chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. You guys try this at home later, okay? Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair, I mean, he just goes through and picks out body parts. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Something lost in translation. Your, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them is missing its young. In other words, you got all your teeth. <laughs> we have set the bar really low here. You got all of your teeth. Wait, we didn't, we're not going to stop there. Your lips, your lips are like scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Built in rows of stone on it hang a thousand shields. All of them shields of war. Your two breasts are like Two fawns, twins of a gazelle. I don't, I don't know. They're grace among the lilies. <laughs> and then verse 7. You are altogether beautiful. Okay, so, this, so she's going to return the favor. What I like about this, it's not just the man giving all the compliments. I mean, she's got a lot to say. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Let me just read a little bit of... Oh, wait. Maybe I'm just reading to you what he, he says. Yeah, I think that's what I got. This is him again, not her. She does say some, some things. I'll let you find them on your own. <clears throat> Chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels. I think this is what I... The, the, your, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. That's not enough. Your navel. That's right. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. So again, I, these are entertaining texts to me that I'm not sure they would have their intended effect if you were to read them. You can find a whole lot more. It's eight chapters of really descriptive reading. So instead of reading all of them, I just want to Offer up a couple of uh, a couple of lessons. What do we learn? If you read, and I think if you read it, you need to read it from chapter one to chapter eight and read it all together because it, it's a poem. It stays together. It needs to be read like it won't take you long. Take you twenty minutes to read. Read it slowly. Take a pen in your hand and think on some of those things. This is God's word. He's given to it. What good is it? What do we learn? 
I'll just, I'd like to offer up a couple of lessons. <clears throat> we should celebrate monogamy. Celebrate monogamy. A man and a woman. Even if you're single and you're not going to get married, you should be thankful for marriage between a man and a woman and see that it is good. It is God's good creation. He has given it to us in Genesis 1 and 2. Celebrates it in the Song of Songs. He codifies it with the Gospel in Ephesians 5. He consummates all of history in Revelation 19. It's, I mean, it's just good to think through a family that that is a good thing. Even if you're a single person and you're never going to get married, you can see how a family is important. We should celebrate that. That's a good thing. We should, uh, another lesson you learn here is this is a celebration of heterosexuality. A, you should not be apologetic that you are a heterosexual. I'm not saying you should walk around being proud, pride, pride's a sin. I'm saying we, we are thankful for heterosexuality. This book, from chapter 1 to chapter 8, it is this wonderful celebration and display of how good heterosexuality actually is. So with that in mind, I'd like to, to parse that even further. I think that uh, the Song of Songs is a, is a celebration of, of femininity. Of femininity of strong femininity. It's an interesting book. When you open it up, you start to read. The very first voice is one of a woman. And the, the woman that is recorded here, the Shunammite woman, she is not a wilting flower. When you read it, the things that she says are strength. I mean, they're strong. They're direct. She expresses what she wants, what she thinks. But she does so. There is this sense of femininity. And in the church, we should celebrate the, the strength there. It's good for us to read that and be reminded, man, it is healthy and right and good to, to celebrate those things. If you're a woman that, that, that made you a woman, and as a man, to appropriately be thankful. Celebrate femininity. I would also say that in this, in this little book, chapter 1 and verse eight, uh, chapter 8, we should celebrate masculinity. Masculinity. That, I don't mean the, the, that was Dumez's argument that, that, that what we see as masculine is a cultural appropriation. I would argue that it is not. Man, when you read the Song of Songs, that, if, that were, if that were uh, contextualized, it would sound a whole lot like men today. If there is this real, in our world today, there is a pretty significant uh, press against what has been historically understood as masculinity. You read this, uh, it celebrates. But, but let's be clear, the, the whole Bible celebrates masculinity. Celebrates what it means to be a man created in God's image. And here's this picture of a man in, in pursuit of, of a woman by way of romance. So I, I think you should read it with this. If you're a man, you read it and think, that's good to be a man. I'll, you might even want to write it down somewhere. I like being a man. I don't want to be anything else but a man. And you read this and think, yeah, that's good. That, God has, that is a gift from God. I'll give you something else I think that uh, the Song of Songs gives us. And this is for all of those that are, that are single. Uh, 
the Song of Songs, one of the lessons here is that courtship is not a fad. Courting a woman or if, and a woman you're involved in that, in that course, that is not a fad. That is not something that was created in medieval times and we called chivalry. Chivalry is a reflection of a man and a woman courtship. That there's an actual, there's, there's an actual pursuit. When you read the Song of Songs, there is the man bounding like a gazelle. I mean, you read it. You know, he's in, there's a real pursuit. It is a picture of what it means for a man to prove himself, to win her affection, to display that he deserves to have her, to achieve, and to win. It's courtship. And, and it's not a fad. I mean, here's something that's 3,000 years old. If it was written in 936 or 965 or so. Here's a picture of, of courtship. What is not a, it is a gift from God. Give me something else. The, this book teaches us the power of words. And if you didn't think your words have power, I, I know what I was going to read. Chapter 5, it's when the woman's talking to the man. This, when you read it, it's so poetic, but... She speaks in chapter 5, uh, verse 10 and following. This is her talking. He's hearing it. My beloved is radiant, Rudy. He's distinguished among 10,000. I mean, he, we might say one in a million. He's among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside the streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms, look how strong this guy is. If I could get my woman to talk like this, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. So you, th I mean, I'll just stop there. The power of words. And, and you read this and you realize, man, there's such, God has given us communication. He's given us the ability to speak and to think, to be creative and, and this, if, you're, if you're married, it's a good reminder. If you're courting, it's a good reminder to, to say it. And read this and say it with creativity and enthusiasm and joy. There's a power of words. I think, I think this book gives me another lesson. Uh, I think this teaches us that uh, romance is timeless. Romance is timeless. Some, uh, there's a reason some of you go by the library and read those Amish romances. It's the Amish people. Yeah, I didn't know they even liked each other. Amish people. Romances. So there's a reason that you have movies that you would classify that women like to watch, the romantic comedies. And men will watch. I'm there because she wants it, and I want her, so I'll sit here. It's absolutely timeless. Now, this is 3,000 years old, and it, it's not just sex. It is actual romance. It's timeless. I think, the, uh, I think the, uh, one of the lessons we learn here is 
the beauty of marriage. If it's true that Solomon wrote it, it's in his early in his reign, 965, before he turned his attention to all the other women. And you have here as a young man with the Shunammite woman he marries, that there is some real joy in the, the first years and how it sounds and feels and looks and, and the goodness of and the beauty of marriage. I'll give you one more thing. Uh, and that is we, the lesson, I don't know if it's a lesson or not, but when you read this, we are reminded we, we need to be fighting against the world's broken sexuality. So if Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden, then they're naked, not ashamed. Okay, you have that. You read all the way through and you get to the Song of Songs and it has all of these pictures of garden. It feels like a garden. There's a whole lot of talk about fruit and pomegranates and everything else. It's set in a garden. So it, it, it has this reminder, things used to be perfect. And then we get over to Ephesians 5 and a picture of Christ in the church, but it says that that's marriage. And then you get to Revelation 19, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and somewhere woven into all of that is, is sexuality. And we live in a world that has, has a broken view of sexuality. God has made it good, and we fight against that. Now, and I don't mean culture wars, but we fight against we fight against immorality and abuse and divorce, and we fight against pornography. We fight against normalizing uh, LGBTQ, lesbianism, homosexuality. We fight against normalizing transgender. Why? It's not because we're trying to be critical or harsh or hateful. We we certainly don't want to do that. It's because the Bible has given us something beautiful. And all of those things I mentioned are broken sexualities. What God has given is something beautiful and whole and right and good. And, and the song of songs points. It points us. It takes us from creation through the beauty of marriage into the picture of the gospel to Christ's return in Revelation 19. Before, before we close it, I'd like to offer up a couple of uh, resources, some recommended things if you'd like to read or be interested in finding more about how you as a Christian can rightly stand humbly and with great strength against the culture. Uh, one website I would recommend to you is the Council for Biblical Manhood and womanhood, CBMW, if you can't remember it, CBMW. Lots of really good resources from a, from a very conservative Christian standpoint, biblical standpoint. You can read a lot of stuff there. A book that I just finished, I put it on social media. It's in our bookstore by Rosaria Butterfield. The name of it is Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Rosaria Butterfield, a brilliant woman, she came out of a lesbian lifestyle, gave her life to Christ, and is a brilliant writer and just a godly person. She's spoken for us at women's conferences here. Uh, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, Rosaria Butterfield. That's it. I think there are three or four copies in the bookstore. Another one that's a little more technical, written by another woman named Nancy Piercy, is The Toxic War on Manhood. Toxic, the Toxic War on Manhood. I would recommend that. It's, it's a tough reading. I, 
it's, it's, medi it's medium reading. Like it's not easy. It's not completely hard because I'm getting ready to give you a hard one. It's right in the middle. But, but it's, it was a very helpful read. It's a sociological study. It comes from a Christian standpoint. You guys might remember Christopher Yuan, who was here with us. He wrote a book called Holy Sexuality. We've recommended that before. If you haven't read that, that's also very, very helpful. And then the last person I'll recommend is Carl Truman. Carl Truman. He's an Englishman. He's a professor, a writer. He's written several books. He also has a, a newsletter and a website. You can just Google him, Carl Truman. Uh, his most famous book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a hard read. It was so hard, people got on him about it, so he wrote another one to make it easier. And it's, read this one. Strange New World. Same stuff in the big one. It's just condensed that we can understand it. Strange New World, Carl Truman. I hope that you'll be faithful in your fight against a broken sexual culture. And I hope that you'll take great joy in seeing God's good hand from Genesis to the Song of Songs to Ephesians and Revelation. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for the word of God that guides us, that inspires us, that feeds our souls. We thank you for the picture, the continuity of your word. We thank you that you have created us male and female in your image and that is good. We pray that you'd find us faithful, living humbly and joyfully in all that you've given us. God, we pray that you wake us up tomorrow morning in enough time to spend some time in your word. We pray that you go with us this week. Bring us back Sunday that we can gather as a congregation and rejoice in the good grace you give us in Jesus. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. We're dismissed. <laughs>